Thank you for listening to this audio recording produced by Truth Point Church in West Palm Beach. We exist to point people to the truth of the gospel. God with us is today's theme. But before we get started in that, I've, I've got a question for you, and I want you to admit it with your hands for the kids that are here. How many of you ever wished you were a superhero? Come on, you just thought about it. Like you saw a superhero and you wish you were a superhero. All right, keep them up for a second. I want to take a picture of all you Presbyterians with the hands up in church. Yeah, me too. Superhero stories are awesome stories, and you think you want to be a superhero. Maybe even if you didn't wish you were a superhero, you kind of thought, man, I want to be in a world like that. Like you're watching a superhero movie. And remember, the reason we need superheroes is because the problems are just too big for a regular old person to solve them. The world is so broken, but it's exciting, right? And there's a superhero that's always in the movie you know going to be just big enough to solve the problems. And you think, I want to be there in a world like that. Even though, you know, if you do actually remember what the regular old people in those worlds, they're mostly doing the running and the screaming and the dying early to set up the drama. And if you're slow like me, you know, the, only, the way to get away from a dinosaur is not to be faster than the dinosaur, but faster than your friend. And I'm that friend. You know, I think about those, those scenes in the superhero movies where there's the people that are in it. And I'm the guy like this as the, as the buildings are falling down. But you want that exciting thing. And we identify with superheroes and we, we have this sense. We love those stories. You may not love every kind of them. You don't have to love Marvel to love superheroes, even if it's the detective that's just smarter than everybody else and can solve the mystery. And there's even superhero images in things like love stories with somebody who's more perfect than any other person. But we love the idea of superheroes. But one of the things that does set up the idea of a superhero is a problem so big, a world so broken, an evil so real, that it can't be defeated by one of us. And that's the part that we identify with, and I don't think it's an accident that we identify with it. We identify with it, we want it, because that is the world that we live in. And we're made to know it. And we're made to love those stories. And if you've been with us through Advent, we've been talking through the Old Testament and what the Old Testament is talking about, about who is coming. And we started off talking about just the brokenness of the world, even in the very beginning, the imperfection that it was possible for it to go wrong. But then how quickly Adam and Eve, our parents, chose to make it go wrong. And the reality of there being an evil that is stronger than us, that's personal, and that wants us. And the, the indications, there's going to be a conqueror, there's going to be a perfecter, the curse on the world is going to go away. And then the promise of a king, we want a king, a king is kind of like a superhero, but how Israel kept getting bad kings, and God promised, despite your faithlessness, I'm going to give you a great and perfect king. And then last week, if you were with us about the need for us, each one of us, in our broken relationships with God, to have someone to pay the penalties. Because if this Christianity is just about getting right and doing right, the certainty is that we are all failed already, and we are all doomed to fail again. Because in our own power, we just keep failing and failing again. The problem is too big. 
And as we finish Advent, we're going to be talking about the coming Christ as the one who can do all of that, which makes the coming Christ more than just a Davidic king, more than just a fixer, more than just a lamb. And we're going to see how Scripture in several different places, and there are many, many more, declares that the king who is coming is God himself. And then we're going to end going out hearing why. So let's open up, and, and today's going to be a lot of different places. If you've got your Bibles with you, um, we're going to start off in Luke, but we're going to be looking at several different scriptures through the course of this. If you want to follow along, some of them are, the first one is in the bulletin. If you've got your phone, you can have your phone ready as long as you, you know, don't switch over to email um, in the middle of the sermon, which is why I can't use my phone when I'm preaching, or I would, I would check email from here during a sermon. But the first part is here in Luke 1, 26 through 35. This is, this is uh, centering on Luke. Luke is, our, is the gospel that's the most like the historical gospel. And there's a lot of indications that Luke probably interviewed Mary. He probably talked to Mary and got stories with her as he was building out his history. And here is him talking and we're hearing from Mary's perspective what happened. Luke 1, starting in 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was Joseph, whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. This, this story actually is one of the, it's interesting, we don't pay attention to this, but the miracle here is one of the most interesting miracles in the Bible. Because most, almost everyone, essentially, as far as I can recall, everyone but this one, every miracle but this one, is a public display of God's power in a way that's undeniable, that testifies to the person who's speaking or to Jesus himself being there or to God speaking directly. But this miracle is different than all those other ones because this miracle is hidden to everybody except for Mary. The only thing we have to know this miracle is the testimony of Mary herself and Joseph, her betrothed, who said that he was told as well about this. This is different than any other kind of miracle. The miracle, signs and wonders, is how it's usually talked about in the Bible. And signs and wonders are usually these declarations that all of us who see them then know God was here undeniably. Some people get upset about miracles and say, well, I don't believe in, I mean, come on, modern world, we can't believe in miracles. I mean, science, we know that stuff can't happen. It's like, those people weren't idiots. That was the point to them, too. The thing that made a miracle miraculous was that it was weird. It's not like somehow we figured out that they're really weird, and so they couldn't happen. They were weird then. That's what made them signs and wonders. 
But this one isn't like that. This miracle relies on the testimony of a teenager. Now, I taught high school. (laughs) That's not the best kind of miracle as a sign and wonder, declarative to the world. But this miracle is the kind of miracle that's more about the substance of the thing, that this child who would be born is different This miracle isn't about the sign or wonder. We rely on the testimony of a teenager to know that this child was the son of the Most High God. To be this king, to fulfill this promise, as it says here in the text, to reign over the house of Jacob forever with a kingdom that has no end requires a superhero, somebody more. Now, the early church, you may know, they wrestled with this over and over again. Who was Jesus? Because very often, in fact, you may have had somebody challenge you, go to the New Testament, show me the place where it says, you know, exactly the Trinity and exactly the incarnation, exactly this was God. And somebody might read this and say, well, yeah, so Jesus is special. He's bigger than a regular old human being. He doesn't have a father, virgin birth. There's people that said, you know, Jesus was really special, and so God, like, adopted him later on and then gave him a bunch of powers, which that's a superhero movie. There's a superhero movie for basically every one of the things you might propose. Or that he came from another place, and he was, like, almost as big. There was an old heresy called Arianism. Make God, make Jesus as big as he could possibly be without actually being God, because there's only one God. And so Jesus becomes really, really big. Jehovah's Witnesses today are the closest thing we have to that ancient thing. Let's say as much as you can possibly say, make Jesus as big as you possibly want to make him. Just don't make him God. But the thing is, if we go on to the Gospel of John... And we look right at the very beginning. In the Gospel of John, where Luke was was working so hard to give us a gospel that was this this historically accurate, went and interviewed people, declaration to the gospels, the Gentiles, of exactly what happened, John is concentrating on telling us about Jesus as God. And how does he begin? In John 1.1, you probably had to memorize it if you grew up in the church over and over again, but it's worth us hearing here as we think about what's coming. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the word. This word that we translate is logos. You've probably seen it all over the place. You can spend a lot of money on software if it's logos. I mean, there's this, that, that word shows up a lot. You'll see ministries that are named logos. That's the Greek word. The reason I want to bring it up is it's bigger than word in English. It's a thicker word. Word is the right thing to translate it. I'm not arguing with the translation. But when you read it in Scripture, I want you to read it as more than just a sound that carries meaning right? Like elephant. So I say that word, I made a noise, and a picture comes to mind for you. But logos in Greek, it could mean just that, but it could be a lot bigger than that. It's also the word we get logic from. It's the word we get the ology that you were probably had mistranslated to you in school is like biology is the study of life because bio is life. It actually means the logic of it or the order of it. 
Word could mean the whole conversation. One of the best definitions I heard of it is, like an action is an expression of your will, logos is the expression of your mind. That logos is this thick word. Being the logos of God means more than just word in this simple as if it was a sound from the very beginning. And when we see finally in here, and the word was with God and the word was God, this is where, this is the starting point for our Trinitarian theology that's so hard but so important that says the son of God who came and was born with Mary is not some lesser being. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses have changed the Greek even so that it says in the beginning was the word and the word was a God. Was a God. No. The word was with God and the word was God. God himself in the person of the son came and took on human flesh in the birth of Jesus. God is coming. The superhero is coming. But, but what about the lamb image? This is so big, so we could just have that, and we could have the bigness. The king is going to come, and it's going to be the God incarnate, and it's going to be glorious and conquering, and that's like the normal superhero movie where it may be a hard battle, but in the end, the superheroes win, right? If the problem is too big for one superhero, you get another, and if you have to make enough movies, you end up with 27 or so of them all doing different things. But in the end, the superhero will be bigger than the problem, and it's conquering and winning, and yay, no more running and screaming. But we saw the lamb idea. We saw it. We saw it in Isaiah. We know that this is part of Christ's story. We started our service today with Christ is risen because he died. Where's the lamb part? And if you're, if you're following along, turn to Revelation, to Revelation 5. This is this fantastic image. And in fact, it's going to take us not only to the lamb, but all the way back to the beginning of this broken world. John, the same John who's given us the gospel, re references Christ over and over again as the lamb in Revelation. Revelation's a tough book to read. If you haven't heard this before, it's a a genre of writing that was highly symbolic. And sometimes we get scared of symbolism because we think that means things aren't true. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that there's a lot of symbolism to it. So if they're talking about Jesus appearing as a lamb, it doesn't mean that he was physically a lamb. It's, it's a reference to appearances, and it's true. We do that in our talk. But it can make Revelation very difficult to read. But in, in Revelation 5, we have this really incredible image that involves the lamb. See, remember the world is broken, and Revelation is the picture of the world getting remade. Revelation is a picture of the new Jerusalem. Revelation is a picture of all the ends of the curse finally coming to their end. Revelation is a picture of the restoration, not just of the perfection of Eden, but of an Eden that can never fail. But here we have in that, we have John watching, and the seals represent these, these actions of God to make the world right. And so here read Revelation 5.1. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll, <clears throat> written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from him who was seated on the throne. The lion of Judah, the lion of Judah, appearing as a lamb who was slain. It is Christ who was able to open the scrolls. It's Christ who was able to make all things new, not just because of his power as the Lion of Judah, but also because through his death as the Lamb, he took all of our debt, all of our guilt, so that the world that's renewed isn't empty of people. He took all of our debt and all of our guilt, and he paid for it on the cross. He did come as the lamb, as the son of God, as the lamb, so that he could go to the cross not just with one person's guilt, like a person could do, but with all of our guilt, as only the son of God could do, so that every one of us who are in him could have that debt of guilt wiped away, and when he conquers as the superhero, we can be called into that kingdom with him refreshed, renewed, made perfect, made whole. Because he was the lion of Judah as a lamb who was slain. And this image of the lamb lives on throughout Revelation. We hear it again and again, and it's such an interesting contrast. It's this story of finally all things being set right. It's a story that just wants a lion And John, over and over again, reminds us it's the lamb. And sometimes, sometimes in our world today, Christ probably feels like a lamb to you. He probably feels like more lamb than lion because in his grace and in his return to the kingdom and in his continuation of working his kingdom out through people like you and me and churches like you and me, at times we feel powerless. And at times it feels like God's just not active enough. But knowing that what he has done is set us free from guilt, and if you're here and you don't know him, that is what he did on the cross. The Son of God came, took on human flesh, went to the cross so that in faith in him you can have all that guilt set aside. And you can participate in the growth of his kingdom. And the last place we want to look is to know why he did that, and we're going to go back to our friend in Hebrews, in Hebrews 12. Why did God do that for you? If you know him, why did he do it? If you don't know him, why did he do it? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And if you've been here with us, you've heard this several times. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do this? We don't have all the answers to the why do this, but the answer we have is for you, for me, for us. That God saw this coming as a man, coming as a king, coming as God, as worth it because we are the joy set before him. Look, I don't feel like a joy most of the time. My kids are here this morning, and they will tell you I don't feel like a joy to them most of the time either. I don't feel worth that. And I know enough of you to know that some of you are not worth that. And you know each other, and you know you're not worth that either. If we looked at our, like, being so awesome and always making people feel good and being so valuable, we are... our. Our beauty, our joy, our value is not in our perfection and the greatness of the things we do and how wonderful we are. But God says he loved the world, so he sent his son. He loved us as we were, so he made us into what we weren't. We are the joy set before him. And listen, as you go out of here, so are the people around you. What he has done in leaving us here and reigning from heaven and waiting to restore is working through us so that not only can we be his joy, but so that we can be the outworking of his joy to the world. That we can be ready to go and bring the gospel to others to let them know God loved you so much he came to earth. He took on human flesh, he lived, he was despised, he was ignored, he was killed, but he was resurrected. He's risen. He's risen indeed, and it was all because you are his joy. Christmas is not always a time of great joy. It should be. But as you go into Christmas, especially if you fall into that pit, if you're one of those people who's overwhelmed right now with what's going on in the world or with your own failures or with your own problems, with your own guilt, know that God saw you as, a jo- as the joy worth dying for. The broken you, the flawed you, not a perfected you. He didn't die for the you that could be in heaven. He died for the you that was here. Amen. And he has forgiven you. And if you don't know this, Jesus, that's who he is. He's the God, the maker of the universe who was in the beginning, who took on human flesh that you could be redeemed, not taught a bunch of lessons on how to live better, but redeemed as you sit and then called into a kingdom that lives out that good news for others. That's our Christmas message. That's what's coming. Give gifts to each other, reminding each other, Jesus gave a gift of himself to you, and I give this little tiny gift away to symbolize it. It's a great, great thing. God is coming, and he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that even in our sin and our guilt and our failure, even in our doubts and our fears, even in our constant walking away and our running away and our trying to fix ourselves, that you loved us and you sent your son to live as one of us perfectly, to be ignored and hated and despised by people just like us, to die taking on all of our guilt. And Lord, that you set us free 
And even then in setting us free, it's not because of how good we do and how well we follow, but it's because of your gracious gift. Lord, give us that gift of faith. Remind us again of the work that you've done in us and help us to trust and rely on you and not be thinking and depending on all that we can do. Lord, give us a a wonderful Christmas, not wonderful because of these earthly gifts, but wonderful because we remember what you did for us and it helps us to be joyful, even in a world that feels so broken. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio recording produced by Truth Point Church. We encourage you to distribute this to as many people as you'd like, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about our ministry or to subscribe to our podcast, please visit our website at www.truthpoint.org.